Chapter 7 of An Angler's Hours by Hugh Tempest Sheringham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Fisherman Billy. As long as my boat, says old Billy firmly, looking with pride upon the great pool at our feet. We have been speaking of a certain legendary carp that lend romance to the place. Old Billy, it appears, has from time to time seen a colossal tail threshing the surface, and he will not permit himself to estimate the weight of the body to which it belongs. Old Billy is one of those grandly untruthful persons who will not occupy themselves with the smaller statistics at all. The carp are undoubtedly there, they are numerous, and they are as long as old Billy's boat— that is the thread of his discourse, unravelled from the tangle of metaphor and illustration. "'You can't catch him, is his impolite conclusion. "'Nor can nobody,' is his afterthought, dictated probably from interested motives, for have I not on sundry occasions given the old villain the wherewithal to buy beer?' Even old Billy recognises the unwisdom of particular charges of inefficiency against the person who, for the time being, represents a day's wage of unknown quantity. However, I am not prepared to quarrel with his assertion, partly because I have never been able of set purpose to catch carp anywhere, and partly because I am not quite convinced that these particular carp have existence other than theoretical. Twice have I been within measurable distance of belief, once when fishing for bream with a bunch of larvae of bluebottles, politely known as gentles, impolitely known as maggots, and I hooked something irresistible which ran out all the line and destroyed it at leisure in the depths. Once again, when a stout new salmon cast parted like cotton on the strike, but these events are of now distant past, and time has induced wiser incredulity. Probably in both cases I hooked a pike, a circumstance that often precedes angling misfortune. On this sharp winter morning it is somewhat out of place to speak of carp, and, but for old Billy, I should not have done so, for we are intent on pike and pike only. Old Billy, however, must always ease his mind on that subject. In some obscure way, he seems to think his own credit and reputation greatly increased by the presence in the pool of fish which are enormous and uncatchable. Possibly, too, he has some unrecognised vein of poetry in him which finds vent in frequent allusion to the wonders of the deep. Having dismissed the carp, however, he brings the punt round to the landing stage without further delay, and points with pride to the live bait in the bucket. Finer live bait, he said, you could not see anywhere. Money, in fact, could not buy them. Conceding the point as one which hardly demands emphasis, for old Billy caught the live bait himself, and I fished with him before, I get into the punt and instruct him to push off. The pool is some eighty yards in width, and some hundred and twenty in length, and it is in parts very deep. 
bottomless, according to old Billy. The great river which forms it here plunges over weir beams for the last time before it joins a river still greater a mile lower down, and it celebrates its last victory over the obstacles opposed to it by man in a fine turmoil of foam. Then the main current sweeps grandly across the pool to its channel below, leaving behind it two enormous eddies, one on each side. A finer pool for pike-fishing would be impossible to conceive. The bottom is all of gravel, and the supply of fish seems inexhaustible. No matter how many may be caught one day, the next finds the pool restocked, for it is the mecca of all the pike in many miles of the parent river. Of this fact old Billy is well aware, and he regards the fish from a base matter-of-fact point of view. His avowed object is always to kill as many as he can. That is why he desired me to fish with trimmers today, a suggestion which I sternly put away. Trimmers are, in the first place, an abomination. In the second place, they are large discs of cork, painted on the one side white and on the other red. A stick runs through them, and a line is wound round them, and they are sent out with a live bait to fish by themselves with the white side uppermost. When a pike takes the bait, the trimmer turns over and turns red. Blushes for shame, in fact. Then you go and chase it in a boat. The use of these things is reprehensible, but, no, on second thoughts, I will not speak of the fascination of the game. I will merely denounce them, and so leave them. In his heart old Billy despises me for sticking to the rod as a good sportsman ought. But fish, he admits, we shall probably catch, for the water is right and the weather. There were a few degrees of frost last night, and it is still cold. The amiable red sun that is now well up will make it a little less cold presently, but not much. This December day he is more for ornament than use. The air, however, is dry, and there is no wind. This is the cold that makes one vigorous and does not induce shivering fits. It is, in short, as fair a day for winter fishing as could be wished. Old Billy paddles the punt out to the marks, if I may borrow a term from those that go down to the sea in ships, and sticks in his ripex just at the head of the father eddy. For some unexplained reason, most of the pike inhabit this part of the pool. It may be that the other eddy has less movement, and consequently has accumulated a little mud. At any rate, nine-tenths of the pike taken in the pool are hooked in this eddy, and here we accordingly fish. I have a somewhat childish liking for a beautiful float, and the one I mean to use is large and fat, its upper part a rich crimson, and its lower a deep green. I am well aware that it is conspicuous, and that the complete angler would be ashamed to attach a thing so monstrous to his line, yet it is not so large as a trimmer, and its ruddy and cheerful countenance always seem emblematic of hope, even when the fish are least in the humour. Equally ruddy and cheerful, 
are the three little pilot floats which are fastened above the other at intervals of eighteen inches. They are used ostensibly to keep the line from sinking, but really for aesthetic effect. The line will not sink because it has been well greased in the manner known to dry-fly fishermen, but the floats look pretty as they follow the big one in an obedient row. If the rod were long enough, I should use more. Old Billy would not understand my refined pleasure in these minute things, so I do not trouble to explain them to him. Instead, I dangle the snap-tackle before him that he may put on a dace from the bucket. While the floats are travelling down the eddy, I have leisure to consider his appearance with more care. He is a very small man, and extremely ancient, clean-shaven, and with a face wrinkled like a winter apple. Yet small, ancient, and wrinkled though he be, he can paddle a heavy boat against a strong stream, can lend a hand with the seines when the salmon are running up from the sea, can pull up his eel-traps, no mean test of strength, and can carry a bucket full of water or fish as well as many a younger man. He is an astonishing example of what an open-air life will do for a sound constitution. He will never see seventy again, though his age is a matter of speculation merely. He himself is not informed on the point. As far as I can ascertain, his principal article of nutrition is beer, and though he does not stint himself therein, one would hardly think it a wholesome form of diet. Yet here he sits, this cold day, clad only in his blue jersey, patched trousers and rubber boots, as hale and hearty as can be. Only once have I known him to be ill. I met him outside his favourite house of call, looking thoughtful and somewhat troubled. Questioned as to the reason of his dejection, he complained somewhat bitterly that the doctor had knocked him off his beer. I inquired why, and old Billy said that the doctor had called it pneumonia, had prescribed bed and simple fare, and generally trampled heedlessly on all the patient's convictions. He had even said that old Billy would die if he did not obey orders. I strongly advised him to fall in with the doctor's views if he could see his way to do so, and to soften the unpleasing counsel gave him something for luxuries. He said he would think about it, and so soon as I was out of sight, proceeded to do so in the public house. He consumed a regal quantity of his favourite beverage, and apparently drove out the pneumonia. Since then he has had the poorest opinion of the medical profession. "'He's under, master,' says old Billy suddenly recalling me from my scrutiny of himself. Sure enough, the big float has disappeared, and the pilots are also vanishing one by one. I wind in the slack line and tighten on the fish, which I can tell at once is only a small one. He fights gamely enough for his size, but a two-pound jack is quickly mastered, and very soon he is over old Billy's great landing-net and lifted into the punt. The hooks are taken out without trouble, and I examine them to see that they have taken no hurt from the jack's sharp teeth. Suddenly I hear a sound of thumping, and looking up 
find that old Billy is beating the unhappy little fish on the head with a bottle, the instrument he commonly employs for dispatching pike. This is annoying. I fully intended to put the little fellow back, for he is two pounds short of the size which I consider adequate. This I explain with vigour, and command the miscreant to release his prey and return it to the water. Old Billy gives a final decisive blow, and then, regarding the inanimate corpse with satisfaction, observes that it is too late. He has a theory that it is fatal to success to return the first fish of the day, however small. This he explains at length, giving instances of the lamentable results of such weakness that have come under his notice. His practice, I regret to say, is to kill the small fish that come later in the day also. I have seen him in the proud possession of dead pike that could not have weighed a single pound. Mindful of this, I give him very solemn warning of what will happen if he does it again, and then turn to the fishing. Presently there is another run which results in the capture of a second pike of small dimensions. This is rescued from the bottle with difficulty. Then for a full hour the float works round and round the eddy, down the main stream, and even round the other eddy without a touch. Old Billy snorts, and reminds me that he prophesied as much when I returned the second fish of the day. It is particularly unlucky to return the second fish of the day. It certainly does look as though something was wrong. It is now near midday, and two runs from little fish are all I can boast of. Moreover, there is no time to waste. It will be dark by four, and if I am to show anything like a decent basket, I must work for it. Requesting old Billy to modify his croaking, I reel in and take off the floats and snap tackle, replacing them by a spinning trace weighed with a heavy lead. My companion pours scorn on the idea of spinning. I shall catch nothing thus. I might possibly have caught something worth having with live bait if that fish had not been returned. As it is, I shall catch nothing anyhow. The idea seems to fill old Billy with melancholy pleasure, in spite of the fact that there is a price on the head of every pike over five pounds killed by me this day. The old man is often like this. If the mood seizes him, he will not prophesy good concerning his clients, but evil. I ascribe this to his having found once a dead human body in the river, a proud occurrence which is one of the landmarks of his life. Whenever he thinks of it, he becomes solemn and prophesies evil in a tone of befitting seriousness. Afterwards he will, if allowed, relate the incident, dwelling with unction on the more gruesome details. I do not encourage the charnel-house talk, however, but request him to put a bait on the spinning flight for me. This he does extremely well, in spite of his contempt for my policy. Many decades of wicked life have taught him all there is to know about catching fish, and he is unrivalled at getting the perfect curve on a spinning bait, an art that many fishermen never acquire at all. 
practice will not do it alone, an unerring hand is needed as one of nature's gifts, and you must arrange the hooks right instinctively at the first attempt, or your trouble will be in vain. There can be no revision of your work, or you will destroy both bait and temper, and in the end produce nothing better than an unseemly wobble. Old Billy's bait spins beautifully, as can be seen by trying it close to the boat with a short line. Now I pull about thirty yards of line off the wheel and coil it on the floor of the punt with some care, so that there shall be no kinking. Kinking is one of the curses of the pipefisher's lot, but with reasonable precaution it can be avoided. When one is in a boat, one ought never to be troubled by it. The principal things to ensure are a clear space for the coils of line, well away from rollocks, oars, and other hindrances, a sufficiency of swivels on the trace, and last, and most important, some power of self-restraint. The bait must be swung, and not hurled. Swing it quite gently, and it will travel an immense distance by its own weight, picking the line up cleanly and gradually as it goes. My thirty yards of line run out without let or hindrance, and then, after giving the bait a second or two to sink nearly to the bottom, I begin to draw it in, working it slowly with the rod between each draw of the left hand. In deep water one can hardly spin too slowly. Old Billy watches with a cynical eye. Mr. Jones, he observes, can throw his bait fifty or sixty yards. Evidently the dead body is still in his mind, and the tribute to Mr. Jones is not so important as it might seem. If the positions were reversed, and I was in the counting-house while Mr. Jones was in the punt, I doubt not that the fifty or sixty yards would be placed to my credit. Thirty yards are sufficient for the day, at any rate. Before the bait has travelled ten, it is checked, and I have that supreme sensation which makes spinning for pike so fascinating, the sensation of being in contact with some mysterious power in the depths. It is not in the least like the sudden plunge of a large trout. The feeling for the first second or two is though the riverbed had suddenly become animate and had grasped the bait in firm hands. A kind of electric thrill is communicated from the fish to the fisherman, and informs him at once that he is not fast in stump or weed. Occasionally, it is true, he may for an instant think that a weed is a fish, but the real thing is never to be mistaken. After the first few seconds of resistance, the pike begins to realise his predicament, and he fights in sullen wrath. For quite a long time I cannot recover any line, and even have to concede some yards as he bores steadily out into the strong current. The firm strain tells, however, at last, and I get him after several rushes nearly up to the boat, till his olive back is visible about three feet below the surface. The sight of the punt, however, rouses him to new efforts. Down he goes again with tremendous power, and is under us before I can realise it. 
In a second he will be round one of the ripex and free as water. In these circumstances there is but one thing to do. I plunge the point of the rod right down into the water and hold him as hard as I possibly can. Now he must either break or yield. And fortunately he chooses, or cannot but choose, uh, to yield. He is brought back to the right side, the net is under him in an instant, and he is in the boat, as pretty a seven-pounder as could be seen in a year's fishing. He is short and thick, his olive sides touched with a hint of yellow, a typical winter pike. He will eat, I give my word for it, as well as any spring salmon. He has taken a minute for each of his seven pounds to land, which gives some idea of his fighting qualities. It has been my experience that pike of between seven and ten pounds often give more sport than far heavier fish. They play with more dash, as a rule. A big pike seems to make the error, not unknown among big nations, of underrating the forces opposed to him, but he has not the advantage possessed by them of being able to learn from his mistakes. Old Billy has by now used his bottle with effect, and is looking at me without guile. "'Didn't I say you'd catch something, master?' he demands. The incident of the dead body has faded from his memory, and he is sanguine once more. The next thought is luncheon, which we must consume in haste, for only another hour or two of daylight remain, and I hope to catch at least another brace of fish.' Old Billy declines to trifle with sandwiches. He has obeyed my instructions to provide himself with what he needs, and he indicates the half-gallon jar, which is his constant companion on fishing excursions. I am glad to see, however, that he has also brought some bread and cheese. While we eat, he relates various marvels that he has seen and known. His favourite story is of the enthusiastic fisherman and the great pike which is supposed to have its home in the river above the weir. The usual way of fishing the river is to trail a spinning bait forty or fifty yards behind a boat, and in the course of a day five or six miles of water will be covered twice. The great pike in question was said to live in a deep reed-line reach about four miles away and was estimated at twenty pounds. Well, one day old Billy was rowing the boat with two fishermen in it who had made up their minds to catch the big one. The weather was just right. The baits were all that could be wished. All things were favourable. As the boat approached the monster's haunt, all hearts beat more quickly, and when, just in the right place, one of the rods bent to a heavy weight. The excitement was intense. Backwards and forwards across the river surged the fish, fighting with great power, though not with the dash of a salmon, and all three were convinced that they had got him at last. Old Billy is of opinion that it was some hours before they got the enemy up to the boat, but that is probably an exaggeration. Up to the boat they got it eventually, however, and even then it could not be seen, nor could the angler force it to the surface. Old Billy, fortunately, had his biggest landing net. 
a monstrous thing, four feet in diameter, with a long pole as a handle, and he determined to try and scoop the fish out. To his joy he succeeded in netting it, and then the united efforts of the three were brought to bear, and they lifted out an enormous fish-kettle. The utensil had been caught in the handle by one of the triangles, and had naturally offered a great resistance to the rod, swinging from side to side in the current in the most lifelike way. If the angler had not been using the strongest of tackle, he would never have landed it. Even old Billy was deceived, he admits, and he even went so far as to look for the fish inside the kettle, but it was not there. By this time we have made an end of eating, and I begin to fish again, but curiously enough the spinning dace attracts no more pike to the net, though I get one half-hearted run from a small fish which just touches the bait and leaves it. A precious hour is spent in vain, and I can see that old Billy's mind, for lack of occupation, is travelling back to the dead body once more. Soon he will begin to croak. This must be averted somehow, and I try a new device which has often served me well in this pool before. Taking off the gimp trace, I replace it by another of stout gut, and attach thereto a Devon minnow of a nondescript yellow colouring and two and a half inches long. Old Billy, of course, protests, assuring me that them things is no good. But perseverance is at once justified, for I get a nice five-pound fish at the second cast. Thereupon old Billy asks me again to remember that he said I should catch fish today. Before very long I am fast in another, which is also safely landed, but which has unfortunately played havoc with the bait. The sharp teeth have practically destroyed the dressing of the hooks, and it would not be safe to trust the chances of a third encounter. I have not another Devon of the right size and colour in my box, so a spoon-bait is put on for the last half-hour, greatly to the dissatisfaction of old Billy who has no sort of belief in spoon-baits. This time he may be right, for I only catch one three-pound fish, which I return hastily before he can get at it with the bottle. By now it is freezing again, and the sun has set, so I decide that we have had enough. Old Billy pulls up his ripex, and we return to the landing-stage. We have a brace and a half of decent fish to show, so we have not done so badly. Old Billy disregards the form of thanksgiving as I hand him his day's wage and something over, but again begs me to remember that he said I should catch fish. I should, he adds, have caught more if I had not returned the small ones. With that he packs the four pike for me in the long rush basket and hastens away to the black swan, while I walk off in the opposite direction. This evening he will describe to an admiring and credulous audience the complete failure that attended my efforts until he himself grasped the rod and showed me how it should be done. By closing time he will have caught all of the six fish that entered the landing net this day. But... 
I forgive old Billy his little weaknesses. The only complaint I would make about him is that his company has made a short winter day seem still shorter. End of chapter 7